The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop snorkeling for baitfish and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 360 with guests Joel Pobar and Ted Newark, recorded live Tuesday, July 15, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who thinks Microsoft should have called it Break Shoe, like he suggested, Carl Franklin. In my living room, NASA complains about the sonic boom. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's your Thursday show. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell here. What's up, buddy? Ah, uh, you know, no rest for the wicked, man. I'm just having fun, and I always like a Thursday show, especially in the summertime. You know what I've been doing? Speaking of summertime activities, I have a. You remember, I bought a recumbent tricycle a long time ago. I do remember. I remember you broke it too. Yeah, I finally got off my fat ass and started riding it. So uh, I've been riding it like crazy, like nine miles a day, and it's really flat down in New London, down towards the water. Really nice places to go riding, but man, that is the most fun you can have on three wheels. I, I do think it's funny though because people say, "What have you been doing?" I said. Oh, I rode my tricycle for nine miles today. And the, nice. the, the image that that conjures of me. <laughs> going, Must have been a hell of a tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not a good image. It's not what you expect. Sorry about that, people. Didn't mean to do that. All right, Richard, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, sir, what do you got? Better Know a Framework, of course, where we shine a light on some little pieces of the .NET Framework so that you can uh, go investigate yourself on your own time. And today I'm talking about system.drawing.text.installed font collection, oh. which represents the fonts installed on the system. Uh, pretty much that's it. Uh, what else can you say? I mean, So this is how you find out if you really have Arial? Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, that's it. If you've got Ariel. <laughs> that's what I'm worried about. Do I have Ariel? You didn't check to see if you have Ariel. <laughs> this is a heinous bug. What are you thinking? What were you thinking? All right. That's it. Installed font collection. Know it, love it, learn it. Simple. Simple. Can you want to tell, talk about the enumeration of the fonts at least? How complicated is it? Uh, it's a collection. So you just thumb through it. It's just checking the name property? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, man. You, and you could you could actually aggregate it to say how many have I got of the serif and how many are sans serif? Here's, here's the remarks. Do not use the installed font collection class to install a font to Windows. Then <laughs> that's pretty what much... What more do you need to know? What more do you need to know? I mean, there it is. Right. Yeah. So, you got an email. I do indeed. And it's a polite one. It says, uh, word of appreciation. Hello, sirs. Good way to dodge the name order thing. <laughs> I am a developer who has been listening to .NET Rocks for approximately one year. I find most of the episodes interesting and many of them enlightening. However, I have lately listened to two episodes that far exceeded your regular high standards and which have forced me to write these words. Mm. Wow, that's quite a show. Mm. Last week, I listened to episode 300, Richard Campbell Tells All. That was funny. And today, I listened to episode 309, Les Pinter Looks Back. Did I mention I have a wicked backlog? These two episodes were by far the best two hours I've ever spent with my MP3 player. Doesn't listen to Mondays, obviously. Apparently not, yeah. I am writing to simply express my appreciation and to plead that you in the future occasionally include episodes like these that instead of focusing on a particular technology, give people with deep experience and, dare I say, deep wisdom an opportunity to talk about the road that has taken us to where we are today. Kind regards, Jan Soberg, Sweden. Jan, thank you. That was very I'm nice. Thanks very, very nice. much. And, and it's, you know, I always worry about our Thursday shows being a little crazy and, uh, and off the wall. Like this one's going to be, I'm sure. Oh, come on now. <laughs> come on. That's a good Thursday show. It's going to be a good Thursday show. Anything else? Uh, well, if I could think of some other things to throw in here. The uh, New York tour is still going strong in, in at Infusion in New York. Infusion, they're looking for uh, developers to come to New York City and work for a year. They're looking for developers in Dubai. If you're up for an adventure, Dubai is the place to be right now. Um, also they're looking for people to come to New York and do surface development for Microsoft surface, which sounds like a lot of fun. Absolutely. If you're interested in the New York tour, of course, we've been talking about it, but they'll fly you out there. They'll pay for an apartment, your, your rent for an apartment in Manhattan for a year, get to hang out with some cool people, right? And learn a lot of cool stuff. And then if you're ready to go further after that year, then you can go to Dubai. Yeah, sure. So, uh, read all about that at shrinkster.com slash... KH6. And uh, if you're interested in Dubai or the uh, surface thing, just send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I'll hook you up. And I guess it's time to uh, bring on our guest. Well, good news. We have some. Yeah. Joel Pobar and Ted Neward. Uh, do we need a buyout? Do, do I have buyouts for these guys? What well, do I decide? would point out that Ted Neward is currently in a tie with Stephen Forte for the most frequently interviewed person on .NET Rocks. Really? And at this moment, this would be show number six, which puts him in the lead. Ted, congratulations. Well, well, thanks. I can't tell if that, that makes me famous or infamous. <laughs> so Ted, of course, is a freelance Java.NET guy who's uh, into connected systems and uh, all sorts of 
uh, things. And Joel is, uh, he's a Microsofty who is, uh, talked on our show about concurrency, among other things, but you're a systems guy, right, Joel? Uh, well, I'm, I'm a low-level guy, compiler yeah. languages and, and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, last time we had you on the show was with, uh, uh, Brad Abrams, and we were talking CLR. That was in 2005. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I hope Brad's been on since. Oh, Brad has been on since. But, you know, he's in Redmond, so it's yeah. a whole different thing. You're on the other side of the world. I am, yeah. Yes. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I moved back to Australia. Awesome. So. But you're still working for Microsoft from there? I am, yeah. Yep. And still, are you still uh, this, in the CLR team? I wish. <laughs> No, um, yeah, there's, there's a weird thing with, with Microsoft and working for product teams. They, they kind of want you to be there in right. order to, you know, right. to, to write and ship products. Uh, no, I'm, I'm basically working for the services guys and, um, you know, it, it's a pretty crazy job to be honest. I don't really work full time. Uh, that's, you know, that's my, my first guilty admission. Nice. And, um, you know, I, I float around Australia kind of trying to fix, you know, hard .NET bugs and, and uh, you know, do some architecture stuff. And so and, you're saying yeah. you work double time, right? <laughs> nah. <laughs> Far from it, actually. <laughs> Go jet Eight, eighty hours. Let's put it that way. <laughs> eighty hours a week instead of forty. Yeah, but he but he always starts the day before you did because he's on the other side of the dateline. <laughs> That's right. You always got to jump on everybody. Yeah, it's it. You know. Yeah, this way his uh, his his bug fixes actually occur before the actual bug report. Awesome. <laughs> That's a good yeah. trick. That's good fun. Well, what are you what are you working on lately? You guys are doing a book together. Yeah, yes, we are. What's yep. that all about? Well, you know, I figured you know Joel and me we didn't have enough to do, so <laughs> sort of looked around. What 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 could I come up with to really sort of soak up? any and all remaining free time that we might have had, and book just leapt to mind. Because Joel's got a lot of free time, uh, in case you didn't know. <laughs> well, you know, you heard that comment earlier about water skiing, right? Water I skiing? missed it. <laughs> no, I th- Apparently, wow. Good to know they're paying attention to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, um, you know, and of course me living in Redmond, you know, working as an independent, you know, all we do is, you know, us independents, we just sort of sit around and, and wait for the checks to roll in, right? So, yeah. I would point out you're writing books. If you wanted checks, you'd be doing something else. Welcome to Four Guys <laughs> Talk Sarcastically to each other. <laughs> yeah, Richard, let me introduce you to this buddy of mine. His name is Sarcasm. Oh, nice. Sar, very very nice. good friend. Yeah. No, um, basically, this is uh, this is a second edition of the Rotor book, the, the one that I did with uh, Jeff Schilling and Dave Stutt a long time ago. Yeah, and speaking of Rotor, that was a long time ago, the last time I even thought about Rotor. Rotor is the, uh, the well, tell us what it is. It's the CLI implementation that's free, well, open source? Well, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, the, 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 the Rotor bits were originally, you know, a open source with lowercase letters, not uppercase letters, it's not GPL or anything, uh, implementation of the CLI that's based more or less on the commercial CLR. So for a lot of people, this was their first chance to sort of look and see how the CLR had been, you know, built, architected, et cetera. There's a number of things that were removed because, you know, Microsoft didn't think they were really necessary to have as part of the, the CLI implementation, but... You know, it, for a lot of people, this is a, 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 an easy way, a good way to sort of look under the hood and see, 
you know, to see how a, a real, you know, execution engine works. And then, you know, obviously when we wrote the book originally, you know, that was Rotor V1, and there were a couple of things that changed. I don't know if you guys knew this, there were a couple of things that changed between V1 and V2. No. Before, like, before we get into that, let's discuss the difference between Rotor and Mono, because th there might be some confusion okay. about that. Um, one was written by Microsoft, the other one wasn't. What else do you want to know? <laughs> well, Rotor, Rotor is an, an Rotor is a like you said a way that people can learn about how the CLR works under the hood, and Mono is an actual implementation of the .NET framework that. Uh, and I don't even know if they. I think Miguel uh, Miguel de Acasa said they didn't use the Rotor bits, but you know there is some parallel. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a big parallel, right? Like, both are kind of CLI implementations. Yeah. Um, interestingly, like, the, 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 one of the big points that's most often forgotten with Rotor is that it is actually the, the CLR source. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's hugely important, right? <laughs> like, yeah. the CLR source minus some bits, uh, that were kind of removed for trade secret copy IP stuff. Right. Uh, the bits that they removed are actually really small, a really small surface area, like the JIT and the GC. The JIT, the just-in-time compiler just -in -time and compiler. the garbage yeah. collector. And the garbage collector. Um, there was some some technical reasons why they, they removed the JIT. Um, the, the biggest one was that they needed the cross-platform portability to go over to FreeBSD and, and macOS. Um, but, yeah, I mean... How cool is it that you can you can literally crack open the CLR source code and and take a deep deep dive and figure out what the hell's going on? Well, um, what's the advantage of doing that versus using something like a reflector to to look inside the framework? Right. Okay. So classic example. Um, I want to no one understand how you know a method in reflection works. Um, say get type. Well, if you crack open get type in a reflector, you won't see very much at all. I mean, you'll see a bit of kind of, you know, your C sharp representation of IL, uh, but for the most part, it'll just, um, what's called, uh, um, E call or, you know, F call back into the, the runtime itself. So unmanaged code. So you get a, a bit of, bit of C sharp source and then it says, look, I'm passing this off to the unmanaged runtime, um, to continue execution of this. Which and so you can't see that stuff. You said E call or F call. What is that? Uh, it's the manage to unmanage uh, calling transition. So we're in the managed world, we're executing code, and now we need to move into the unmanaged world, uh, i.e. the runtimes world, to continue executing code. So it's like a, a call transition. Um, it's a way of you know calling into the runtime, so to speak. You can think of it in some ways like a p-invoke call. That's what you I was going to think. Yeah, of. like you're calling out to a DLL, but in this case, you're calling back into the runtime. Okay. So there needs to be a few more bookkeeping kinds of things that are taken care of in order to make that work successfully. And in some cases, you know, we just the the, the CLR guys just did not want to expose certain things as a DLL export. Right? P-invoke requires you to be able to look this up in the right. DLL and, and see the ordinal and so forth. You don't necessarily want to expose some of the deep, dark, arcane secrets of the CLR, not because they're trying to hide anything, but just because they want to be able to change the implementation over time. Okay. Right? That is really quick. Um, they want to make the call transition as quick as possible. With pinvoke, you have to do a lot of marshalling, and that, that takes that takes cycles, right? Well, we can't afford those cycles. So. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, to, to sort of follow up on Joel's, uh, you know, explanation here, this is one area where... 
you know, let's assume from a practical perspective, a developer has a choice between, I want to decide whether or not I want to do reflection to grab a method and invoke it through the reflective API, or do I want to use a delegate? And, you know, normally, you know, the developer's only way to really sort of gauge the performance impact of this would be to, like, write a test and say, all right, let me, let me, you know, call each one a million times and see which one is slower. The problem with this is there's so much other stuff going on in the runtime. Trying to do those kinds of microbenchmarks will frequently be distorted. There may be other things going on that you don't know. With the rotor source base, you can actually step through it. You can actually follow the call and say, oh, wow, this one's like an extra pointer in direction. That one has like 14 pages of validation that has to go, has to happen before the call goes through. Okay, cool. Now I know which way to go for, from a performance perspective. Right? The ability to drop into the source of the execution engine and really see what's going on under the hood rather than just speculate is just incredibly powerful. Okay. Uh, but this, it strikes me that this is technology has largely been an orphan. Like, it doesn't seem like we're getting a lot of love for it. The CLR is freely given away anyway, just not the source. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, where are the advantages? What are people doing with the SSCLI? There, there's some amount of research going on, uh, particularly in, in the Asian Asian country area um, and some in South America. Uh, but, yeah, for the, for the most part, I have to agree with you, Richard. I think, um, you know, it, it, it was meant to be a catalyst for research, and it's largely kind of, you know, dropped the ball there. Um, so, you know, the, the way I, I pitch it to people nowadays is, like, literally, if you do want to understand more about the, the, the stack that you're using, then... You know, grab a book like this one, um, crack open the source, and and you know, start your tour. I mean, I'm putting myself out of a job, right? Because yeah. <laughs> you know, at right. the moment, I, I go around and fix .NET problems, but you know, some of these problems are e- easily fixed just by looking at the runtime source. So there's value there. And let's know? face it, it is fascinating stuff. I mean, if you're the kind of person who really gets into how systems are put together, right? But um, you were going to mention the differences between the this version and the last version. There's plenty. <laughs> yeah, because we're talking about we're going from version one of the framework to version two here, right? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, so the runtime changed quite a bit uh, between V1 and V2. And you'll notice that lately with all Silverlight and .NET 3.5 and, and so on and so forth, the runtime hasn't changed much at all. Uh, but yeah, the, the 1 to, to 2.0 differences are massive, um, mostly because we had to retrofit a lot of new stuff. Um, generics was one big one in particular that touched pretty much the whole runtime. Um, and, and a bunch of new new stuff to enable things like dynamic languages and functional languages. So a lot of good new stuff in the reflection space, uh, token handle resolution APIs, lightweight code generation, all that kind of stuff like has deep runtime impact. So um you know, and in order to enable that stuff, uh, a lot of runtime, unmanaged runtime stuff had to change. And they, they also did a, a huge amount of work trying to make, um, like, tweak the data structures in the unmanaged world uh, to make it run faster. It's like the perf guys got in there and went, oh, actually, you know, we tend to hit this particular bit on this type handle quite a lot. Let's move that from the cold area of memory into the hot area of memory. So a lot of kind of stuff was jigged around like that as well. Hey, this is Carl. I just need to take a minute to tell you about the latest offerings from our friends at Telerik. As you probably know, they've recently released their huge pack of web controls built on top of ASP.NET AJAX 
that'll help you build impossibly fast and interactive applications in no time. But you've just got to check out their Windows Form stuff. It looks just like WPF. How about a carousel component in Windows Forms? How about a super powerful grid view control and 32 other desktop components with dazzling WPF-like features? In reporting, Telerik has this new design surface that simulates graph paper. And it's got so many advanced page layout capabilities, it looks more like graphic design software. So visit www.telerik.com and download a free trial. And make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I just love that little tiny, those are little tiny moves that add up to huge iteration counts when the code actually goes up. Like, it's just, oh, that's very cool. I'm counting literally cycles on the processor for that. It is insane what those guys can do. Um, both both guys that uh, kind of led the effort, uh, Rico Mariani and uh, Jan Gray, have moved on to, to bigger and better things. But those guys are crazy. And they know their <laughs> shit. <laughs> speaking of crazy, speaking of crazy, there's a question that, uh, and Richard, I could probably just ask you this question, but I want to get a low-level guy's answer. Sure. Rings on the CPU. Ring zero, ring one, ring two. This is something that has always boggled my mind conceptually. What is that? Um, it's boggled my mind conceptually as well. What, what, are you talking about uh, cache levels or? No, I'm talking about ring, um, execution levels. Execution levels, I guess. Is that what they call it, Richard? Yeah, they're really are execution levels. It's only ring zero and ring three that matter. Yeah, what are they? Oh, look, you're asking the wrong guy. Um, All right, well, Richard, maybe you can answer my question. Yeah, that's the, you know, those are privileges into the infrastructure of the machine, and it gets into this whole memory protection concept. In Ring 0, we have access to all of the kernels, but it's the fastest way to execute. And Ring 3, we're in protected space, where as soon as you try and write that outside of the space, an interrupt is fired, and that's when you get, like, GPFs and all that but, other fun But is stuff. that the kind of stuff that's happening at the assembly language level, like at the processor level or well, the operating no, system these guys level? Are talk, when they talk about ordering bits like that, they're talking level below that. They know how the registers access their address space and the order of those things and why they'll be faster if we're working in a low bank versus a high bank. All right. Like, it's just spooky, So this isn't spooky. stuff that a developer says, there's no attribute, run this in ring zero, for example. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, no way to go there. That's, that's an that OS thing. Yeah, that would be terrible. What you're talking about here, Carl, is sort of the difference between, you know, what device drivers need to do and what your application needs to do. Okay. Right? Device drivers need to have access to all sorts of of dark corners of the operating system that you would never want your application to get to. Right. Right? This was one of those enhancements that we wanted coming out of the DOS world where, you know, hey, I could scribble anywhere I want inside of the process space and do whatever I want. And as a result, people did, and they were able to do some interesting and crazy stuff that was good, but more often than not, they did some interesting and crazy stuff that was really, really bad. And so Intel, as well as a number of other chip manufacturers, decided to give some hardware support. And, you know, this was a case where they over-engineered the solution, right? They created these four different rings, these four different protection levels, ring 0, 1, 2, and 3, and, you know, at least in the case of Windows NT and then, you know, what we now call the Win32 API, Microsoft said, we really don't need anything more than the lowest and the highest level, Ring 0 and Ring 3, right? So we're done. There's, there's you know, one one lets me do anything. The other one says there's some protections, as Richard pointed out. And these but are the pr- kind of optimizations that Joel's talking about, we don't even have to go to that level. I mean, we're just talking about data structures inside of the CLR itself 
right? Historically, in V1, you know, a certain amount of information, there were two areas, for example, talking about class uh, class description, right? You know, when you create a new class, foo, the CLR actually breaks this up into two areas, one of which was called the method table, which was considered the hot data. This was like where stuff that we were going to be going off to this object frequently for would be stored. This would be like, you know, where like fields and some of that kinds of stuff would end up. And then there was the E class, which is where, you know, a lot of the descriptive stuff and, you know, like essentially uh, uh, links to who my parent class is and so forth. That's where all that stuff would be because we don't particularly go there very often. We don't walk the type hierarchy all that often. And that was considered the cold area. Well, as part of that optimization, people looked at, you know, Rico and, the other, and, and these guys looked at where this, this stuff was being accessed and how often and said, oh, this field here is being hit more often than we thought. Let's move that over, over to the hot area and save ourselves one pointer in direction. Right. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, you know, low level optimizations that these guys are talking about. That's awesome. And, yeah. It might be worthwhile explaining why it's hot and why it's cold. Um, I mean, the reason why the method table is so hot is because it tends to live in uh, the cache of the processor. Right. And, um, yeah, the E class um, has to be paged in probably from physical memory. So, um, yeah, that's why they're hot and cold. Yeah. I mean, just being able to, to draw that distinction between the two, right, enables the hot stuff to go into cache and the cold stuff to stay out of it. Because if you're going to put something into cache, you want to make sure you're going to be going to it frequently. You want high levels of, of cache hit rate. I mean, this stuff is, is you know, low level enough that, you know, there's there's a fairly niche group of people who really, you know, are going to worry about it, you know, in terms of looking at the rotor bit. You know, we're not expecting, you know, your average VB developer who's thinking about, you know, oh, I want to make my, my application run faster. He's not necessarily going to be pawing his way through the rotor source looking for, you know, should I, you know, should, when, I, when I do my, my count from 1 to 10, should I start at 10 and count down or start at 1 and count up? That's not really the kind of optimization scheme you know, people are necessarily going to see. But when you're talking about, you know, another great one, if I have a choice between a generic list, right, list of int versus one of the old school collection classes, which one is faster, right? Here you have the opportunity to look at the source, to play with it, to step through it in the debugger, and and to actually see which one would actually be faster or which one would not be, which one consumes more memory, et cetera, et cetera. These are opportunities that you wouldn't have if the rotor source were there. I guess what I would do is just an empirical test. But you can get confused. You can. There's a lot of noise that can take place. I suppose you're right. I mean, one of the reasons you have to do this. Well, yeah, garbage collection is one. You know, you know, in some cases there could be some issues. Is there boxing and unboxing taking place? And so why? Right. Those kinds of things can can frequently introduce noise into your test that will lead you to make erroneous conclusions. And quite frankly, I can say that with some degree of, of of confidence. So, I mean, basically what, what, what we saw in the Java space, because Sun, you know, the source was available, but there were some really weird licensing restrictions around it, and so nobody really wanted to touch it. I mean, Sun basically said, if you try to use this for educational purposes, right, even if it's just educational, like you wanted to learn more, then you had to, like, owe Sun all kinds of money. So a ton of people never actually opened up the JVM source, and as a result, we got all of these myths and legends and lore about what the, the, the JVM and the jitter and so forth were, were trying to do. And it turned out we were horrors, horribly wrong, I mean, horrendously wrong on, on several, several scenarios. 
that now that the source is available over there, we can start to go at it and say with some degree of confidence, oh, whoops, we don't really need to worry about this stuff. And ditto here now. So if the jitter isn't in the in, in rotor, well, how do we know how it works? Well, there is a jitter in rotor. It's oh, just there is. A, a, there, oh, yeah, absolutely. It has to be, right? Remember, all .NET code is JIT compiled, right? We don't know the actual details necessarily of how the jitter works for the commercial CLR, but that's just, you know, we can we can certainly draw some strong inferences, and we can certainly see when JIT occurs and, and what triggers a JIT. I mean, even, you know, talking about garbage collection, right, what triggers a GC in rotor is the same thing as what triggers a GC in the CLR. It's just, you know, the, the manner in which we actually do some of the bookkeeping is a little bit different. So you're telling me that Microsoft wrote a different garbage collector for the open source implementation? Yeah. yeah. And a different JIT? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the the product's GC is, uh, you know, intellectual property rich, right? Like the, yes. there's a, some really, really hardcore stuff. I mean, I talked about Rico and, and Jan being hardcore. Um, you know, the, the guy that owned the GC, he's he's probably the, the most hardcore of all. So I'm trying to get an idea of what's different about it. Is it probably like just a not as performant version? Right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the the main difference is that one's a uh, polling GC, like the the rotor version is a polling GC. I.e., the JIT emits code to say, "Hey, I need to talk to the like, you know, ask the GC if a GC needs to occur." And um, the the product GC isn't a polling GC, obviously. Um, and of course, the the performance differences between both are, you know. Obviously different as well. Right. So, um, but in typical research case, that, that really doesn't matter. Right. But right, in a production right. case, it does. Yeah. I Actually, a friend of mine asked me just yesterday, he said, um, how does the, like, how does the CLR determine whether or not an object lives on the large object heap or goes into, you know, gen zero? And I, you know, I said, oh, I'll teach you to fish. <laughs> you know, fire up the, the rotor, uh, rotor source code. Load it up into your favorite IDE that supports some um, unmanaged and managed symbols, so symbol parsing, and one of them is uh, called Source Insight, which I use. I think it's really, really good for this. Uh, let it parse all the symbols in, and literally start at the top, like literally do a find on on alloc, and see what see what hits come up. And um, sure enough, you know, there's a method there in the the rotor GC called alloc lh, and uh, that thing is um, is what allocates an object on the large object keep and so you just find the dependencies on that right you step back and say who calls alloc lh well right. as it turns out you know the gc does and so on and so forth yeah. uh, so taught him to fish and yeah it's great yeah it, but you know this is very interesting because uh, most people aren't set up to look at this right right 100% correct. I totally agree with you. If you just spent some time to, to set this up properly, you would be much more successful um, digging deep on the source code. So I imagine your book does does a good job of setting people up. I, I think so, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the book has to first talk about kind of some of the main data structures in the system. You know, things like Ted mentioned before, you know, method table, E, class, you know, class loader, GC, so on and so forth. And then once you've got an idea of where these things live, um, you, you literally start at your favorite method and in, you know, Source Insights case, you hit Control Plus and you start walking down symbols. So, okay, what's this method called? Okay, Yep, let's walk down that, and then let's walk down that, and so on and so forth. So you can really get a good idea of what's going on under the hood um, if you're well set up and, and if you've got the prerequisite knowledge as well. 
And that's okay. part of what, you know, the, the, the intent of the book was, was to be, was to say, you know, I mean, there's no way, I mean, there's, there's how many millions of lines of code in the rotor source space. There's no way that any, you know, reasonable sized book is going to be able to, you know, show you every nook and cranny of that source space. The intent here is to sort of set you up, to give you that prerequisite knowledge, to give you that, okay, if I want to start looking for, you know, where and how memory allocation occurs, if I want to look and see where generics are taking place and how many parts of the system do they touch and so forth, this is designed to give you sort of that conceptual background, right? You know, case in point, threading. How do CLR threads map to native OS threads? What sort of additional bookkeeping does the CLR keep on a native OS uh, thread and so forth. This is exactly the kind of thing that, you know, for example, the threading chapter wants to go into and to show you kind of like, you know, where all this occurs and how a stack walk occurs and is it really that expensive to do a stack walk. Let us point you to some of the basic areas, you know, get you started so that now when you start to say, okay, in my code I want to do X, you could fire up the, you know, the, 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 the windbag debugger, right, the Windows debugger. You can fire up SOS, which ships with the .NET framework, and you can use it to sort of walk through some of those exact same data structures that you've seen because you've read through the rotor book and poured through the rotor source and so forth. So you can carry a lot of that directly into this commercial CLR. You don't have to run your code on top of rotor to see this stuff. It's interesting to be able to do that comparison and then and then look at it there and then realize what the impact that has running in the in the production stuff as well. Exactly, exactly. Because in that sense, it's very very similar. Now, and of course, the core this is only going up to two. So really, this is the open source stuff, and the core of three five is still the same. But all those new classes, the WPF, WF, WCF stuff, and and far more. They don't show up here well, yet. That, isn't that part of the ever. framework and not the CLR? What's the difference? Well, the CLI specification talks about different profiles, right, different sort of levels, if you will, of support from a given CLI implementation. Rotor was never a complete CLR clone, right? So there is no, there's no WinForm, there's no ASP.NET, there's no ADO.NET. All of that stuff was considered, you know, by Microsoft, at least in the initial wrote a release, that was considered to be proprietary, keys to the kingdom, crown jewels, whatever you want to think about it. Right. They did not ship the source for that. But stuff that's in the, and I think it's the kernel profile, which is actually, despite the name, one of the more full-featured profiles. You know, Rotor has the bits for system.xml, system.reflect, you know, a bunch of these things. Um, so it's pretty full-featured, and it's I haven't actually sat down to measure it against the core CLR that comes with Silverlight, but I would imagine there's a fairly, fairly similar overlap there. And the other thing is now that, you know, in Visual Studio 2008, Microsoft is shipping the source to, or I should make, I should say they're making the source available to those, you know, those libraries. Those guys don't ever touch the CLR to speak of, right? When you're looking at WCF code, you know, you're not touching EE classes and method tables and any of that stuff, right? That's definitely several levels of abstraction above. The CLR is still at where it was, you know, when it came out with the time frame, right? So the rotor bits have not needed to revive in order to catch up with .NET 3.5. We're, .NET 3.5 is basically a bunch of new libraries running on top of the 2.0 CLR. And so right. if you're interested in how WCF works, you don't need Rotor for that, mm, right? You can right. just do that with, with your standard commercial CLR and start stepping through the source. Isn't there a version of C-sharp that's part of Rotor as well? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a C sharp compiler that ships with the rotor bit, and I think it's it's still a two o C sharp compiler, right, Joel? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that means you have all the bits to look at how C sharp works. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And quite frankly, there are a number of people. I mean, Rotor was originally created to give researchers and academics and so and, and so forth a platform on which to play, right? In order to sort of experiment and, and do these things. And quite frankly, it served that purpose very well back in the 1.0 time frame when uh, people were starting to talk about generics. A gentleman by the name of Don Syme basically released a source patch called Gyro to the Rotor 1.0 bit. And Gyro later became the core of what 2.0 generics were. And the reason why Don wanted to do this is because he had an interest in this group of languages, functional languages, and he was working on one such language, which we now know and love as F-sharp. Yeah, man. I was just thinking, Don Syme was the father of F-sharp. Exactly. And, And functional languages have a very strong generic component to them. And so he needed generics in the CLR in order to do F-sharp right, so that's what he did. He basically created generics for the CLR, released it as a source patch on Rotor. People downloaded it, played with it, offered up feedback, and all of that went back into the mill when Microsoft actually did the 2.0 generics implementation. So it, it's it's really interesting how this can, in fact, close the loop between the academics and the practitioners. Yeah, well, you know, we did a whole string of shows last year in the spring uh, with various Microsoft research teams, just looking at how they were utilizing the languages. And I got to think that Rotor was sort of at the core of a lot of that. Stuff like Polyphonic C-sharp and Spec-sharp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, and people outside yep. of Microsoft are doing it as well. Not just with languages, but, you know, for example, the probably the most famous example is Chris Sells you know, has long ranted against non-deterministic finalization, right? I don't know when my office goes away, and this is terrible. Well, one of the things... Oh, that- you're going to get a bundle of dead flowers sent to you, nerd. <laughs> I'm thinking about Why should today be any different than any other day, right? I mean, <laughs> the point is, right, I mean, Chris, Chris was genuinely, you know, he was genuinely concerned, and he had right to be, and I don't want to reopen that debate, per se, but the interesting part of this was... As part of the rotor effort, Microsoft Research basically handed out some grant money to people who wanted to research various things on top of rotor. Right. And Chris said, I'm all over this. I want to see if we could, you know, take, if we could take the concepts of deterministic finalization of C++ destructors and knowing when my object dies. And I want to bring that to the CLR. Reference counting, basically. Exactly. That's what he ended up doing. He ended up taking the rotor bits, adding a field, actually borrowing some unused space inside of the object header, and saying, I want to put a reference count here. And he did it, right? Chris Tavares ended up doing most of the work, as it turned out, for various reasons. But the two of them were able to say, yes, it could be done. And then they did some performance benchmarks and realized, holy crap, it's like a 300% degradation in performance to do this. Never mind, we'll live with it, right? <laughs> but this would not have been possible if the rotor bits had not been out there. Chris Sells would still be out there talking about how terrible garbage collection is. And in, today, he's basically, I mean, he's done. The issue is closed. He's achieved closure, right? He's happy with the way things are because he sees, you know, oh, okay, to try to keep those reference counts on every single IL instruction is just going to it's just going to add too much overhead. Wow, I found his project. Uh there so there's a website out there run on the yeah. Microsoft Research site that shows the rotor projects and there it is, Chris Sells studying yeah. the performance of memory usage effects in of adding reference counting to rotor. Yep. From 2002. Yep. Yep. 
And it was, it was, I mean, it was really fascinating. I mean, and I can tell you for a fact that there were Microsoft guys on the CLR team who were waiting to see what he would come up with with bated breath because they didn't necessarily have, it wasn't on their agenda to pursue this, but they felt much the same way that Chris did. And Chris's results kind of put this issue to bed completely. And yeah. to this day, no one has ever really brought it back up again because quite frankly, if somebody has a better idea, well, there's the rotor bits. Go, go to work. Go for it. Yeah, go build it and tell us what you come up with. And if it looks good, you know, sure, we'll incorporate it. Microsoft's not stupid. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. What are some of the other kinds of problems that mainstream developers can solve by using, by looking at Rotor? It's a good question. I mean, I put, I put out the, the obvious one, which is bugs, right? You know, they're having issues with their architecture or <clears throat> there's particular bugs that um, are cropping up randomly or non-randomly and, and, you know, away you go. You can Whenever you're in. making assumptions about how it works. Right. And you don't quite know. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. You want to but, validate or invalidate those assumptions one way or other. I mean, that's that's a great way. I mean, another way, quite frankly, is just, you know, if, if, if a mainstream developer wants to sort of take things to a new level, if they really want to understand the implications of the code that they write, I have not found that, you know, knowing the rotor source has led me to, you know, directly improve the performance of, of a particular method or a particular class, but knowledge of how it works has sort of indirectly led me you know, to, to decide certain things and to do, you know, to, to structure my code in certain ways and so forth. Um, you know, for example, if you want to know how an app domain works, right, what is the cost really of doing cross-app domain uh, communication, right? I mean, we got to do .NET remoting to go across app domains. Or sockets. Re- well, you could talk sockets, but sockets have to go cross processes, right? If I want this all to live in the same process, right, you know, then, then, you know, if I want to measure the, the, the implications, the performance implications of going across app domains, how do I do it? Right? What's really happening down there? And, you know, this is something that you can do with the rotor bits. Um, this is something that would be actually pretty hard to do, I think, you know, without being able to just, you know, open the hood and, and sort of stare in and say, oh wow, when I step through this sequence of code, Right, that black area where we had just always kind of said, you know, magic happens, and suddenly your call ends up over here on this other part of the system. You can actually track it. You can actually watch it go through, you know, the necessary marshalling, and then turns out it's basically a pointer transition inside, you know, to actually go across abdomains. Abdomains are a fiction of the CLR, and that's kind of an interesting idea. It leads you to realize that they're much lighter weight than most people give them credit for, right? You know, these are the kinds of sort of high-level things that you can sort of learn as you start thinking about systems. And so if you want to build something that has some, some degree of isolation, you're going to load third-party components, right? People are going to write extensions to your container, your framework, or whatever. Yeah, I might, I might choose to stick it in an app domain because isolation is really important to me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Those kinds of things, I think, are where, are where people are going to go with it. 
I can think of two other reasons why you might want to look at the source. Um, the first reason is it's a it's a great way to, to get a job at Microsoft. That's the, that's the first one. <laughs> I yeah. looked at the source and my eyes didn't fall out of my head. <laughs> well, true story. At one point, Amazon was reporting V1, the V1 Rotor book, was the best-selling book on Amazon.com for Redmond, Washington. Interesting. <laughs> Who could have been buying it, I wonder? Uh, I wonder. <laughs> And the second, the second reason is, I mean, you'll be more popular than you were before, right? I mean, this stuff at parties is just—it's you know, killer, <laughs> killer, absolutely killer stuff. You know, like look at Don Syme. Who might I add is that this is the most important piece of information that was missing from this conversation. He is Australian. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> of course, he's working in Cambridge, but we won't talk about that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just ignore that point. But he's, no... he's actually from a, a small little backwards country town called Toowoomba. Where and there are I mean, obviously it's... no women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, man. I've been to Toowoomba quite a few times. My my father is originally from Toowoomba, and I tell you, it's a backwater, man. It, it is a backwater. Way I'm, I'm glad there. he got out. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can just see it. Some poor .NET Rocks listener is going to walk up to a bar somewhere like a couple of weeks from now. Hey, baby, you want to talk about app domain? Yeah, because <laughs> I know they're lightweight. Ted Dewar tells me so. Let me quote you from the annotated CLI. But it seems to me that most of this, like you said, it's, it's research stuff. If you're interested in language and interested in stuff like uh, uh, just-in-time compilers and the whole concept of managed memory model uh, application development, this is where you can work. Yep. There used to be a time when it was a very hip thing to say, I could write a better garbage collector, and, and Rotor seemed to be an answer to that. Okay, go play with Rotor. Let me know how it goes. Right. <laughs> right. Good luck with that. Yeah, good luck <laughs> with that. Well, you know, now these days that argue, that debate sort of died down because a new, better garbage collector just hasn't come along. Right. Well, well and, and in some cases, what we're seeing too is, you know, are there, you know, instead of trying to create, I mean, here would be an interesting research project. If anybody out there listening is looking for a, a good thesis project, right? One thing would be, could I build a garbage collector that was tiered, right? Could I build a GC rather than trying to build one GC? that was intended to be used 100% of the time, could I, in fact, build a GC that was doing some sort of adaptive heuristic and it was looking at the way it was being used and said, oh, you know what, this is a case where Mark Sweep Compact will be ideal. Let me use that for a while. Oh, now we've just moved into a case where a lot of you know temporary objects are being created. Let me flip over to a generational or a copying collector. Doing that kind of on-the-fly adaptation would be huge because then you could kind of know, right? Right now, the CLR sort of differentiates between workstation build, you know, workstation code and server code, but it does that distinction, you know, on the, be you know, in the very beginning when the thing fires up. Do that, you know, differentiation over time. Can I actually take my objects and flip them over to a new garbage collection scheme on the fly, right? That would be an, that would be an awesome, you know, college thesis, graduate thesis type paper. Or, you know, could I adapt GC to run differently on top of mobile devices? Or could I adapt GC to run differently in the case of doing, you know, WPF-style interaction, you know, when I'm working with low-level graphics hardware? There's all these, these areas where people can now say, all right, I'm going to try to do something 
and have literally a direct impact on the rest of the industry, right? I mean, take this thesis mm-hmm. paper with you up to Redmond, show it to some of the Microsoft engineers, you know, and then decide if you want the offer on the table. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, if you actually care that much about these topics, we need you involved. Exactly. Oh, yeah. But, you know, this sounds like great university material that you could write curriculum around Rotor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was part of the reason that the, the project was started in the first place, was because Microsoft wanted universities to do some curriculum around Rotor. Because quite frankly, most of the universities were doing it around Java, and Microsoft was saying, hey, that's not good for us as a company. We want people to be as familiar with the CLR coming out of college as people were with the JVM coming out of college. Now the question is, has it happened? Because it's been years. Yep. The, not really. <laughs> There are some. There are some amount of, um, you know, there there are some wins. Uh, just here locally in in Brisbane, Brisbane, Australia, there is a there is a couple of projects being run uh, to look at software transactional memory and yeah. integrating that into the CLR. And you know, that's that's a absolutely a worthy project to work on. And um, you know, if they're successful, as Ted said, I mean, it's literally fly to Redmond, <laughs> you hand over your work, and and get started. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, in terms of curriculum, I think that uh, the rotor source base is really hard to approach for the first time, uh, and you know, it, it, it probably doesn't fair. make sense yeah. there. Then let's be fair, right? As is the JVM source base, right? I mean, right. You know, yeah. someone who's getting, you know, this is not a CS one hundred and one kind of topic, right? This, uh, this yeah. is graduate study type stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is and, pretty advanced know, computing science. It's what we're using today, you know, and, and more. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, quite frankly, you know, this is the fact that it's available, the fact that people can start, you know, building on it. Is, is it, has it been successful? Well, I mean, yes. I know personally people who have come up to me at conferences and said, hey, man, I wanted to thank you for the Rotor book because, you know, after reading that, I was able to do X, Y, and Z. You know, I was able to understand what was really going on here. And as a result, people in the company have, you know, really started to come to me with questions and I've been able to answer them and really sort of has established myself as like the guy to go to within the company. And that, you know, led to some raises, to some promotions, you know, those kinds of things, right? So that educational aspect was definitely happening, but it wasn't happening necessarily around a university context. Right. I mean, you know, there are a number of folks who have actually gone off and built conference presentations around stuff that they discovered while they were in the rotor bits. And, and that's exactly the reason why we, you know, that's, that's why Dave wanted to do the rotor implementation in the first place. And that's why we wanted to write the book was to give people that leg up. And so now today, you know, Functional languages are becoming all the norm. Concurrency is becoming a huge deal. You know, if you really want to start a, you know, sort of make a name for yourself, if you really don't know what to do with your free time and you really want to, you know, try to catch the eye of Microsoft or some other folks, you know, look at is there ways that we could, could you write a jitter based on, you know, a functional language generating IL as opposed to traditional object languages generating IL? that optimized better for the functional language case. Could we write jitters that were pluggable, right? Could we get to a point where we have a commodity jit that plugs in in different scenarios? I mean, there's all kinds of places to play here if you want to go off and do something and really try to, you know, blow people's minds. Let's see. Practice my golf swing or <laughs> write a functional language jitter. Write <laughs> <laughs> my tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> Pull me a point. 
<laughs> yeah, but I would also point out there's nobody on this this show that's 20 and and looking at how am I going to make my mark oh, in the industry true. either. That's right. true. You know, right. there are new ideas coming down the pipe right now and how what the next forward development looks like. Right. And uh, smart people have got to sit down, work on them, and do great things with Listen them. Listen up, Brainiacs. Yeah. It's all up to you. <laughs> as good as knows, it's not up to us. Well, we're done. That's the, thing, that's the thing, too, Carl. So it's not even that you have to be a brainiac, right? You just have to have the time and the and, and the, the motivation to dive into this stuff. I mean, you know, none of this stuff is super rocket science. And a lot of people, you know, we even mentioned it in the first edition of the book, right? You know, you do not have to dream in assembly language in order to understand the rotor bits, right? You know, I have never written any assembly language in anger, and you know, Dave, Dave said that he even has to go back and you know, you know, go back to the manual to consult what some of the less common opcodes are. I mean, you know, we are not assembly language gurus by any stretch of the imagination, and yet we're not only able to understand the rotor base, we were able to write a book on it, right? Joel, I don't know how much assembly language do you have in your background. Uh, a little. <laughs> a little. I mean, I worked on the CLR team, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you got to have some, right? You got to have some, but uh, you know. In assembly language. No, absolutely not. In fact, I haven't touched it in ages. So I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you, I, I agree with you, Ted. You don't really need to. To. In fact, you don't really need to know any of it, to be honest. So. Yeah. I mean, unless you want. I mean, if you get to the point of wanting to do JIT, right? If you want to focus on that particular area then, yes, obviously it's going to be helpful. But the rest of it, eh, they're data structures and pointers. If you can grok that, you can yeah. pretty much grok most of the rotor source base. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, when is the so, book going to be finished? Or is it? <laughs> Joel, why don't you handle that one? <laughs> uh, two weeks from today, uh, we are going to hand it over to the Microsoft Research Guys um, and they'll be putting it up online. Uh, so basically, when you go down to, to, to the Rota download page on uh, Microsoft.com, you, th- there should be a link to the book. It's going to be given away for free uh, nice. as, as a you know, set of Word docs or PDFs or whatever. And if you want the hardcover, like the, you know, the, the paperback version, uh, we should hopefully have it up on Amazon you know, plus four weeks or so. Just it just depends. Just as a point of reference, we recorded this July fifteenth, so right. Yeah, we right. And yeah. Oh, is, right. So. End of July. <laughs> you know, Joel and I should be finished. Okay. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So go to the road to download page, and and it should be there. Yeah, like I'm talking hard deadlines with book office. <laughs> I am. What's the matter? I thinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. we've been working on this now for what a year, year and a half. Yeah, over a year. And you know, I mean, he and I, I think would would kind of like to. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, with without you know, without meaning to offend any of the women in the audience, this you know, writing a book is kind of like having a baby, right? In the beginning, you're really, really excited, and you really start thinking about all these grand plans you're going to have and do and so forth. And then as time goes on. You know, it kind of starts to weigh you down, and you're kind of like, oh, man, you know, this is harder than I thought. And then by the last few moments, you're screaming at anybody who's in your way to just, you know, get this thing out and over with. So true. We're kind of at that point, right? (laughs) We're at the, get me drunk. Hard labor. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we we definitely want to get this thing out sooner rather than later, and and. We just basically picked July 31st as the deadline. It, it, it's done then. And right? to complete the metaphor, then it comes to your door in a box. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Exactly. And then <laughs> I didn't start... even know what that means. but 
<laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, Lauren, well, I apologize. You know, that's all right. You know, Carl, you know, you, 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 had, you had kind of a hands-off relationship with your kids when they were born in your right? You were in the room with a cigar. You know, I don't know. The start came. Doctors were involved. I don't know. Kids showed up at my door. Well, right? I wrote two books, and you described the process uh, perfectly. Yeah, it hurts. It yeah. really does. Well, and then... And then, just to complete the metaphor, right, after a little while, you start looking at it. They're sitting on the shelf, and you go, oh, it's so cute. You know, I could, I could do another one. I could, <laughs> I could do that again. <laughs> it's a kind of brain damage, really, to do exactly. it again. Exactly, right. Exactly. That's what we keep telling our, uh, my youngest son, Matthew, right? Because he asked once, you know, Dad, why did you decide to have me? And I said, well, you know, we had Michael, and he was so good that we decided to try again, and then we had you. And he stops and thinks about it for a second, and he says, but you haven't had any more kids. Oh. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That's right. Uh, don't know how to answer that. Yeah, we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, Matthew's too young to be listening to this show. But 10 years from now, I'm so going to get a box of dead flowers from him. I know. It. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to add to your collection. Right. right. Exactly. Well, guys, it's been fun. The hour's flown by. It's been fun for us. For me, at least. Joel, you had fun? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it, what, it's been three years since the last week on? We should, we should make this more regular, guys, I'm telling you. I tend to agree, but, you know, we get you up first thing in the morning to record a show, that's kind of wacky. Yeah, Richard, how many time zones are we spanning right now? Uh, nine? Wow. Yeah, it'd be something like that, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, ha- having said that, though, I, I mean, it is... When we started the show, it was 8 a.m., so, you know, it could be said that I should have got up a bit earlier, but, but hey. <laughs> Well, I mean, what what time is your morning water ski appointment? Uh, <laughs> man, in summer, it's, it's any time. As soon as the sun's up, I'm up, and oh, that's great. Good Slacker. <laughs> yeah. It's wintertime down there right now. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's freezing. It's a really chilly, maybe, what, 15C, which I think is, what, uh, 60-odd. Oh, it's summertime in Vancouver, and that is summertime temperature. Yeah. You're kidding me. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing living there, man? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a little more north. Yeah, come to Australia and live in the desert. That's yeah. Yeah, sure oh, nice. come on, come on. Because yeah. I haven't had enough drought in my life. <laughs> Boy, am I parched. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. All right, guys, thanks for being wacky with us, and uh, good, good work on the book. Cheers, guys. Summer Cheers. reading for everyone. There you go. There you go. All right. Fly on the- Learn about, like, EE class tables. <laughs> Impress your spouse at the next cocktail party. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions. Providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. Net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a
Yeah, the FCC, yes, I'm a, a dog. 